Welcome to the Mindful Literacy Podcast. This podcast is for teachers and parents who want to gain knowledge, perspective, and inspiration in the areas of literacy education and special education. Episode topics tend to focus on dyslexia, ADHD, literacy education, and mindful teaching. This podcast was created to build awareness for our nonprofit, Mindful Literacy Columbus. Check out the show notes to learn more and to get involved. Welcome to the Mindful Literacy Podcast. I'm sitting with Mike McGovern, who is the president of the IDA Central Ohio branch. And I am so delighted to have you on the show this week. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, so um, I'm really excited you sent over some resources that I hadn't seen before. And I think that what you have to share today with the dyslexic community will be completely invaluable as we not only talk about the new legislation that's been passed, but also just talking about where to find resources when you want to learn more about dyslexia and how to teach and reach kids with dyslexia. So I'm going to turn it over to you and let you kind of tell the story of the, the heavy lift you you all have done to get this new legislation passed. Sure, sure. And before we get into that, a little bit about myself. Uh, my background is I'm a parent with a child with dyslexia. I've been in this community for over 10 years. My professional background was as a computer engineer and business owner. I had a IT consulting firm. But now this is what I do. My dedication is around dyslexia and literacy. As you mentioned, I'm president of IDA and I've been on the board for over 10 years. I also was on a Auburn Academy board for uh, six years, which is a school that specializes both in dyslexia and ADHD. So my life is dedicated to try to work with the dyslexic community and literacy. Um, some of the things that we've done just as, as a highlight is that we've grown the community. You know, there's many of us working together. Uh, to get this community larger, and it is much larger, and there's so many people helping, parent groups and educators, and even school districts, and ODE now, it's just amazing. And our board is made up of about 50% parents, 50% educators, approximately. When I first joined the board, it was almost all educators, and it's a much healthier mix now. Uh, And a little bit more about organizations, we have a helpline that we've built that's responsive, it has detailed resources, we spend time on the phone with parents, giving them a little bit of direction, you know, giving them tutors, advocates, attorneys, talking to them about their school districts, lots of things. And we have parent events, educator events. Uh, we support all the different parent groups that are out there uh, that are working with dyslexia. And we have a gigantic Ohio Dyslexia Summit. This past February, we had over 700 people. So there's a lot behind it that goes into it. Now, a couple of the very large projects we've got done, one is the dyslexia roadmap and the other is the dyslexia law. So I can talk about the roadmap now. Uh, I got together with five public school districts and we didn't want to put it out by ourselves because people that are on the fence or don't know enough about dyslexia say, well, that's a dyslexia community. Of course, they're going to say do all that. But if we work with public school districts that are actually doing these things, it'll have more credibility and more acceptance when their peers are doing it. So we had Pickerington, Upper Arlington, Marysville, Gahanna, and Olentangy school districts work with us to say, 
what can school districts do as they service the needs of those with dyslexia? And so we worked together and we released it last November. It's a 55 page document and it goes and covers building capacity, talking about structured literacy, cost benefit analysis, why it will save you money if you do this. And so there's a lot to it and it's free. It's on our website. The second thing is, and I, let me pause for a second. Uh, do you have any questions on some of the stuff that I went over? Anything you need me to point out before I go into the dyslexia law? Yeah, so I will surely post all of this on our show notes, but just for those listening, I'm, as usual, taking notes furiously. Um, so like, I didn't know about the helpline. That is an, an incredible resource. Is the number on your website for the helpline? It is. Uh, what we prefer, though, a phone number's there and an email address is there. We prefer an email because we have to collect certain information so that we can target our response back to you. So we strongly encourage you to send an email, which the email address is on our website. Certainly you can call, but when we call, we then quickly ask for an email address because we have to email you information and lots of resource. And again, all that's free. We, we are a nonprofit that is focused on providing resources to school districts, to parents, and to individuals looking for help. We're not here to provide services and make money. And so the website is COH, as in Central Ohio, COH.dyslexiaida, as in International Dyslexia Association.org. So COH.dyslexiaida.org. Correct. That yep. is correct. Okay. Yes. And you will see on that website not just the helpline information, but also the roadmap is on the homepage. Scroll down just a little bit, and there's two different versions of it. One, if you're going to print it, it, it so it fits into a binder correctly, or if you want to look electronically, there's a, a, a different format. Same content, just different layout as far as how it looks. So how have you gotten any feedback yet on uh, districts who have picked up the roadmap and, and used it? I'm wondering how, how do you envision it being used and if people have started using it yet? Yeah, the answer is absolutely people are using it. Just for an example, I mean, there's many examples, but Worthington Schools, they have a section on their website about dyslexia resources and information, and our roadmap is one of it, but of their resources. But it's been pushed all over. We, you know, we promoted on social media last fall when we released it, and uh, it's been pushed all over. I mean, it's shown up all across the country. Um, in fact, as a failure of mine, I keep meaning to call our home office and get it pushed out there. It's one of my many to-dos. But uh, I've had different states call me to ask more about it, as well as the dyslexia law. So, yes, it is definitely out there. And as far as what is it used for, I mean, who is the, who is the uh, target audience? It's anywhere from your school district that knows about dyslexia and wants to do the right thing, but you're not sure. So instead of Googling it or asking your peers that may or may not know enough about it, this is for you. Here's what you need to know. Here's explains structured literacy, explains how you build capacity, professional development, and how you can cost justify what you do, as well as people that are well on their way. They still need to know more. And so here's a resource to learn more about it. It's amazing. I'm really looking forward to digging into it. 
Okay, so I feel like um, a lot of a lot of the reason I think some of these resources are so invaluable is because I get asked a lot of questions by parents about resources and how they can learn more, figure out the right. I love the I love the title of it, roadmap for their child. And I know there are several really active parent groups in Central Ohio. Can you talk a little bit about the parent groups and their role in this work and how um, their work has really shifted the culture of how we teach in schools? Yeah, and that is a big, big piece. Earlier in the podcast, I mentioned that that there's many factors that have caused our community to grow. And certainly one of the big ones is the parent groups. And specifically these parent groups, they are solely focused on dyslexia. So when we say parent groups, I guess I should say they're dyslexia parent groups. And there's approximately nine just in the immediate Central Ohio area. And a couple of us have been talking about putting them together. They need to exist in their own district for obvious reasons, because they're dealing with their own district. But they also need to exist throughout Ohio. So Brett Tingley, who's been on the board with me for years, we work very closely together and we both have said, we need to put them together. I was getting ready to do it. She was getting ready to do it and she took it and ran with it. And I said, that's even better because I don't have to do it. <laughs> but I have worked with her closely, right behind her, supporting her and she's driven it. So she put together the groups and they are called OH Kid. And obviously the OH is Ohio. The KID stands for an acronym, Kids Identified with Dyslexia. And so she named it and we, IDA, have strongly supported that group. And so what that group represents is all the dyslexia groups in Ohio that we know of. And it's, know of, and it's not just Central Ohio, of course. There We have one up by Medina. There's a new one we're bringing in from Toledo area. Uh, there's one up by Bucyrus. So we want it to be all of Ohio. Yes, it is currently a little bit weighted for Central Ohio, Columbus, Ohio area, because that is has such a strong movement, but it has definitely expanded beyond that. And what these parents have done in these groups are fantastic. They largely supported uh, my legislative movement. When I needed them to call legislators in contact, they did a lot of that. And that really helps a lot, as well as meeting with their own districts and other things that they've done. Mm, so it sounds like, yeah, a lot of grassroots effort, you know, organized, um, organized missions at heart is really making a shift in how we even identify dyslexic kids, right? Absolutely. It is, it is a big reason for the change. Do you, when you say, when you use the term dyslexia, do you also include dysgraphia? Yes, actually, yeah. I do, we do say dyslexia, dysgraphia, okay. dyslexia, and dyscalculia, you know, the math portion. Yeah, dyslexia is just more the more common term we use. Okay, awesome. Okay, so tell us about this uh, movement and the process. I want to know, I want to know everything. I want to know the process behind um, getting a, a bill passed. I want to know the nitty gritty details of what the bill, uh, or what the bill is mandating. Tell me everything. Okay, so the, the beginning process was uh, I got together uh, six parents, myself being one of them, and two educators, and everybody was all for it. And when it came time to write the technical language, it faltered because it, we didn't have the right dynamic, the, the expertise to do that. So 
I reformed the group. You know, I told the group, hey, we need much more educators, and we all agreed. And so I reformed the group and I flipped it. Six educators and two parents. And of course, when I say parents, they're parents that are long-term been in the sex community. And then, uh, and that eight was made up of four people from Nobida, and Nobida is the northern branch of IDA. We go by IDA Central Ohio because the home office rebranded all the branches, but Nobida kept their name because it's such a strong name uh, that they have. So four from up north and four from Central Ohio made up our dyslexia committee. Um, and then we sat down and from scratch, we wrote a draft of what the legislation should look like. And it's two major components were doing a screening assessment so doing dyslexia screening, and then the other part is professional development, because as most of your listeners will probably know, if not all of them, that's what's really broken is the colleges of education across the country are not teaching the science of reading. They're not teaching how these kids, the only way they're going to effectively learn how to read. And so that's the two components of the law. And so I, will I can break down further what that meant, but that was our goal. And what we did, I'll go back to, you know, the law, but what we did as far as the process is after we got the language together, we, I then attempted to contact legislators and it moved very slow and it was painful because I didn't know what I was doing. So ultimately I made the decision, we have to hire a lobbyist. So we hired a lobbyist and that worked much, much better. Not a big surprise because that's what they do. That's their profession. And so then it moved along much quicker. We got meetings, follow-ups, and, and it worked way, way better. We started on the Senate side. Uh, we got strong support, but some of the language that they wanted to use was not all of our language. And that wasn't very effective because our language is based on what educators have known for years. It's based on research. And then we flipped to the House side, and the House side, our sponsor, very much wanted to use our language. And that's the language ultimately that the Senate also used. And keep in mind, the Senate did strongly support us, but a portion of what they wanted to use was not our language. And that wasn't going to work. There were going to be too many issues. I don't want to get into technical details, but ultimately the House language is, is what won over and the Senate agreed. So both sides supported us, but it was more effective to use the other language. And that's ultimately what passed. So my question about the process is how long did the process take from drafting the language or even having this seed of an idea when you first had that first group of six parents and two teachers, how long was the process until we finally saw the, um, the legislation get passed in both the House and the Senate? So it was officially five years. And what I mean by officially five years, from when I formed the first group to when it was signed into law by the governor in January. Now, prior to that, I had attended IDA, uh, not our own local, but IDA home office conferences. And for about three years, I attended breakout sessions from other states of how they passed the law, the do's and don'ts of how to do a law. And I took furious notes and I contacted those states individually. And so I prepped myself. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, my background is a computer engineer. So I'm very analytical, very process driven, and I wanted to make it effective. And I heard the failures of other states and they guided me and then I launched it. And from the time I launched it, it was five years. 
okay that is long term for sure Yes, I'm in one of one of the questions that came up for me while I was listening to you um, in the beginning um, is Mike, what is your why? What is what is driving you to do this work? Um, what keeps you going? Knowing that, that I don't tear up either ever, but um, knowing kids are being hurt. So my my son who's now 23. So and he's working a professional job. Um, I'm way past, you know, working on it for him. It's, I saw him get hurt by the system. And then when I found out more about dyslexia and realized they could have screened him in preschool or kindergarten with a 10 minute screener and then simply taught him based on what the national reading panel in 2000 said to teach all kids reading, not kids with dyslexia, but all kids, it could have been eliminated knowing that millions of adults and children are suffering and will suffer for years to come because we're not doing what we should do based on science. Being a math guy, I'm obviously closely aligned with science. Quite frankly, I couldn't believe when parents and educators told me how they taught reading. I thought that can't be real. Those are just bitter parents. And then when I looked into it and researched myself and read the research, thought, wow, we can fix this problem, but we have resistance because camps exist. I find it bizarre. If you're in business and you're not producing success, you get out of business. Well, that doesn't work in education because you don't get knocked out of business, you're a school district. So that's what drove me is kids hurting, not just my own kid, but millions of kids. I mean, I'm retired. I've been retired for 12 years now, and this is all I do because we've got to get this fixed. It's sickening and obscene that people are making millions on failing kids on reading. That's just horrific to me. Thank you for sharing that. Sure. Okay, so what a milestone then for you. I mean, you've been fighting hard personally for your son and um, for kids all over Ohio, and now you have this piece of legislation in place. So can you tell us the details about what it includes? Sure. So what came out of the law was a few things. One is the Ohio Dyslexia Guidebook. There's a Ohio Dyslexic Committee, and the committee is, is a pointy of 11 positions. So it has things like school psych, elementary principal, a superintendent, an SLP, a uh, parent, school board member, so forth and so on. And those 11 people on the Ohio Dyslexic Committee have to create a guidebook. And the guidebook is in the law, uh, the creation of the guidebook. And when the guidebook's done, it will have different portions to it. So I will go through that. So by the end of this year, the guidebook has to be done, December 31st, and it will have universal screening, it will have the type of intervention school districts will do, and the remediation that school districts will do. And that the universal screen will be a screener that looks for symptoms and characteristics of dyslexia in a child. It's not a full evaluation, it's a screening tool. And once your kid's identified, then you will get remediation if it's needed, but more likely just the type of instruction. It won't go right to intervention. So some of the things that the guidebook will have, it will, it will determine reliable, valid, universal evidence-based screening for intervention, intervention measures to evaluate K-5 literacy skills using structured literacy. It will also determine qualifications for certified teachers for dyslexia. It will also determine 
teacher ratios within school districts. And the teacher ratio will be based on how many kids you have in a like K3 and how many should have practicum, how much should have just classroom teacher training, because not classroom teachers don't necessarily need practicum. Will it be good if they get it? Of course it will. But will they necessarily have to have it? Maybe not. And we will have practical levels in the guidebook that the district will have. We will develop reporting mechanisms that have to be submitted to ODE, and the committee will help determine uh, with that with ODE. So we are working closely with ODE on this. Ultimately, the committee votes on what gets put in the guidebook, but we are working closely with ODE on how that will work from a, a process point of view. We will also develop academic standards for kindergarten in reading and writing, and it will incorporate structured literacy. And so that's gigantic. Some people look at this, say, oh, it's a dyslexia law. Yes, it is. But in the law, academic standards for kindergarten in reading will be put in there. That's a part of the law. It would be nice to have the law go K-5, but unfortunately, we only got kindergarten. But it's a good start. And then finally, we will assist districts. You have to establish multidisciplinary teams to support the identification, the intervention, and remediation. Meaning you will have a team in your district. And again, it's multidisciplinary, meaning it's going to be a mixture of skill sets on that team. Any questions on that part before I go into the next part of this uh, guidebook? Well, one one that's coming up is, will you be encouraging those multidisciplinary teams to use the D word when they're evaluating kids? Well, this is a dyslexia law. So hopefully <laughs> we are so far past that D word phrase. I mean, this is a dyslexia law. It's in the law. And the U.S. Department of Education, they, many years ago, and I have a letter that I can get to you. They issued it, I want to say in 2013, could have been 17, Number escaped to me that encourage districts to use dyslexia. So that's been around for years, but clearly this is a dyslexia law. So I remember, we're... yes, I mean, I remember reading that brief actually, and I think there's just always been, I think people are afraid to, even if they see all of the indicators in an evaluation and in and everything, like the whole picture is like, yes, they have. They have characteristics that look like dyslexia. We're going to call it a learning um, disability. A learning yes, disability. yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, but I think it's so helpful. I think it's from what I, from my experience working with tons of families and kids, it's so helpful um, when we use the word dyslexia. It is empowering. It is. It paints a picture. It's like, oh, okay, now I know how to. Now I know how to prescribe instruction. Um, it, it paints a picture of strengths and areas of challenge, and I think it's it, it's very empowering for parents to hear that word dyslexia because then they know where to go for resources and they can find community and help and support. Yeah, your last point is exactly the strongest point of all that is that you know what to do. If you, the example I give to parents all the time is, so I do a lot of, co or did a lot of coaching for all my kids when they were growing up. And so if I throw with a kid for a couple months and I think, yeah, this kid can't throw. And then a kid, somebody comes up to me and says, you know, that kid's left-handed, right? Like, ah, shoot, I was throwing right-handed. I thought the kid was, had issues. I tried everything I've learned. It didn't work. The system to teach was broken. 
not the kid. The kid's fine. He's left-handed. Neurologically, he's wired to be left-handed. Dyslexia, they're wired to learn a specific way. And if you don't identify it and call it, then you're not going to know how to work with that kid. It's crazy to me. We just don't instantly say, oh, it's dyslexia. Even if it's not dyslexia, you still should be teaching a kid reading this way. It's how we're neurologically wired to learn to read. So does, yeah, I'm all for it. Yeah. This, so just to clear, just to be totally clear, um, are schools, are school-based teams able to determine if a child has dyslexia or do they have to have that label from a clinical psychologist? They do not have to have the label. In fact, because of this law, it's not, it's not necessarily about the label. It's when you do the screening that will be in the guidebook, it's going to say, based on the results, this child has been flagged as showing the signs of dyslexia. It's not even super important. You say, oh, so he has dyslexia or she has dyslexia. That doesn't matter. What matters is because he's been flagged or she's been flagged, we now are going to do a very specific type of instruction for this child. And we are going to monitor their progress very closely because after two weeks, if they're not making gains, we have to switch what we're doing. So you're going to closely monitor for six weeks. And then after six weeks, if he's not making the proper advancement, you're going to go to a different level. So, and that's part of what I will go over in this well, document. I feel like this was the intention of the third grade reading guarantee. This was the intent. I mean, this is the intention, and it, for some somehow it the it still didn't get um, it did not come to life as how it was as how it was written and how the intentions were. I think yeah, the intentions were nice about the third grade reading guarantee, but I am not a, a fan of it whatsoever. And here's why. It should have been something along the lines, a teacher instruction guarantee, meaning the teachers know how to properly teach reading. Why are we failing the child? Because we're not teaching the kid correctly. You're failing the kid. That's what was broken. Don't put it on the kid. We already know that we've taught this kid for four years and it didn't work. So we're going to hold him back. If you're in business, it would scream, it's broken. Try something completely different. That's what needs to be fixed is the system. Yes. I, and I feel like the intention of the third grade reading guarantee was probably, it was probably didn't have an, enough specific language as this law does. It was supposed to be every school is going to have a tier one curriculum. And 10 plus years later, we still don't. We still see schools who don't have that. We, it was supposed to be kids were being screened and progress monitored. And it's just kind of another piece of paper we have to shuffle instead of exactly. yes. <laughs> yeah, and I would say the majority of them are not doing reading instruction correctly. I mean, they're doing progress monitoring, but they're not monitoring necessarily the right things, the right components, phonemic awareness, rapid naming, all those components. Certainly there's a chunk that are doing it. We're seeing that and they're having great results. Okay, so thank you for that. You, you can certainly keep going deeper into the, into the law. Okay, so another part of the guidebook is the professional development. At the end of this year, ODE will have a list of courses that are approved and they can be both online and classroom learning models. And they will align with the guidebook, of course. And it will also have the classroom teacher clock hours, how much training they have to do. Now there's a specific schedule for professional development uh, that rolls out year by year. 
in the first year, the first year being 2022-2023, K3 will have the professional instruction. Then in 2023-2024, it goes to the older grades. And then finally in 2025-2026, it will be grades 4 through 12. And it will only be special ed providers must complete the professional development. So obviously, right out of the gate, we want to hit the lower grades. And then it rolls out to the older grades. Okay. So is, is there any, um, any guideline on who is providing the professional development? Yeah, that will be in the guidebook. That will be on ODEs. ODE will push that out to the ESCs and the school districts as to what qualifies as the type of professional development that you do. And it will be okay. very detailed. It will have metrics on what you're looking for in your professional development, and it will also list some specific uh, classes. Mike, how do you see this being implemented and the progress of this law being monitored? Yeah, that's that's going to be an interesting component because we know most districts, most districts are going to follow this. They're going to watch closely what the guidebook says, but we know there's going to be some resistors across the state of Ohio that are very much based in their old style of teaching, which has not worked for decades and will not work. And they're going to just want to kind of continue to do it. So we hope that will come out when they do the monitoring and the reporting that they have to do back to OD. We assume that will come to light. We also are going to be informing parents with this and the, uh, we be an IDA, ODA, ODE will do that. So there'll be many avenues to try to uh, monitor this. And then sadly, there are going to be some people that are going to have to sue their district if it's not doing it. Hopefully that will be small, but all of that as a whole will keep this going so that people do it the right way. Another big piece of this legislation is the screening requirement. And that also is rolled out. Uh, the very first year next year, they will do tier one screening. So the first year, kindergarten uh, through third grade, it's required that everybody gets screened. And then that same year, fourth, fifth, and sixth grade, the parent or teacher can request it. So K3 is required, four, five, six, is if the parent demands it or an, a teacher requests it, then they have to do it. And that's the key. Those words are key. That if a fourth, fifth, sixth parent says, I want my kid screened, I think he has it, they have to do it. Currently, a parent can ask for it, but they don't necessarily have to do it. They, you know, they can, they can fight it and go against it. Now, they, because of this law, they have to do it. Now, if you're a transfer student, you have to do it within 30 days, all the way through sixth grade. Now, what's interesting, then the next year, 2023 and thereafter, every year beyond, this is a battle we unfortunately lost against the school administrators. So thereafter, only kindergarten has to be screened. And so if your kid was missed in kindergarten, first, second, third, and third grade, your kid was missed. And kids are going to be missed. Kids might be intelligent enough to, to, that's not the right word. Their reading might be advanced enough that they get past it, but they still have dyslexia. There's a lot of that. Or they don't administer, administer the test correctly. The assessment's not looked at correctly. There's a host of reasons why kids get missed. Um, and so all those kids, they do not have to get screened every year thereafter. So that's why it's important for parents to know 
if you think your kid has it the following year, ask that they be screened again, and then they will be screened because that is very difficult. Um, transfer students, once again, thereafter, if they get transferred, they have to get screened all the way up through sixth grade within the first 30 days. And will be guidelines on what screener you use, of course, it will be in the guidebook. Now, if your student is not flagged uh, and you ask for it and they uh, you, to get screened and they do flag for it, you then fall into what the guidebook uh, tells them what they need to do, specifically monitoring progress. So for six weeks, you monitor. And so you have to check in week two, four, and six. Is this kid advancing in all the key components of literacy? And if they're not, if they're not meaning meaningful progress at or near grade level, then they have to administer a tier two screener by the end of the six weeks. And that's really important and big. And they have to notify the parents, your child is not making meaningful progress. And so they're going to tier two. And for parents that don't know tier two, you then look at an intervention and you get more one-on-one -on -one or small group. It means a lot more than tier one, which is a classroom setting type thing. So that's why it's very, very important. Also, the parents will learn about, they'll get a written explanation of what multi-sensory structured literacy plan is, what evidence-based interventions are gonna do, what typical reading development is. It means a lot of things when we notify parents, not just, hey, your kid's having some reading issues. It's gonna mean a lot more than that. And this comes out of the guidebook. Any questions on that? I know I've covered a lot. I don't have specific questions about it. I think um, I think this has the potential to help so many people. And I was just thinking about, you know, the question I asked earlier about using, about saying it's dyslexia or not. I loved your answer um, because um, it, I think it's okay to say, I don't know, it does look like dyslexia, we're going to treat it like it is. And with this progress monitoring, you're basically um, going into this like filtration system where, okay, it looks like a symptom of dyslexia, but we're going to, so we're going to intervene. Did the intervention work? Yes, no. Like, no, okay, we're going to need to dig deeper and find more data and figure out more learning the, you know, more learning pathways that are taking place or not taking place. And so it's almost like I see it as like this two-way two filtration system. You don't necessarily want to immediately say someone has a reading disability if it's a, if it's a teaching, um, if, if it's an instructional gap, you know. So exactly. some kids will get, some kids will get taught in a different way and then end up not needing to go on an IEP and end up passing screeners and moving up, you know, moving along in the, in the gen ed curriculum. And some will get caught sooner as having, oh yes, definitely dyslexia. Let's look at an IEP. And that's what's so fantastic is, is what you just covered is that part of, if you identify the kid in kindergarten and then you give him the instruction that he needs, your special ed costs are going to plummet once your teachers are properly trained. And that's the key. And here's what's just amazing is that even kids that don't have dyslexia, 
they might be flagged. So we all know the issue of kids that are barely read to that, you know, parents are too busy or single family, single parent homes. Uh, they just don't have enough exposure. You know, that is a different issue. But if you teach them with structured literacy and the science of reading, those kids have shown to learn so much better. So if I could kind of break off briefly, uh, you're, I'm sure you're aware of it. And I bet some of your uh, listeners are, but Emily Hanford, who I assume most people know her article about Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. I want to touch on some of the specifics is she went to Bethlehem, Pennsylvania and studied it in 2015. There are 16 elementary schools in that district. 54% of the students are uh, low income. So they have both affluent all the way down to low income and quite a bit of low income. 2015, 47% were proficient in reading. They switched to the science of reading. Three years later, 2018, 84% of those kids are proficient in reading. You don't have to know data. That just screams it works. You went from 47% to 84% across 16 districts. It, it works. There's no doubt. And I guarantee you a lot of those teachers were not properly trained, hadn't all bought in, meaning even without an imperfect system, but going to the science of reading, it works. You cannot argue with 16 different districts. It's not perfect, but is it fantastic? Yes, it's fantastic. As they say, don't let perfect be the enemy of good. Structured literacy follows the five pillars of literacy from the reading panel. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking back um, to... I'm thinking of, okay, so a comment you made about if people don't want to change uh, their teaching strategies, I don't think it's so much that. I think, you know, teachers go into teaching because they do want to make a difference in the lives of children. I think it does come down to training. And I think I'm, I'm envisioning one of the things that I'm saying we as a dyslexic community will want to make sure to remove any barriers for school staff is time, money, and access. Because those are the three things that I've, that I have identified as being barriers to why this didn't happen as the, the inference and the intention of the third grade reading guarantee. This was what it was supposed to be, I feel like. And oh, so how can we remove those barriers of time, money, and access to all school districts, to every school? Because there's already just blatant inequity in our school systems. And so how are we going to remove those barriers as a community, Mike? Oh, absolutely. And it's unfortunate. I think a lot of it has to be legislation. I'm not a fan of going that route. It was a difficult, I didn't personally enjoy that piece of it. Um, but, but to your point, I want to highlight something you said, and it is absolutely not teachers. Teachers are fantastic people. They got into this to help children. They're not getting into the million dollar bonuses because they don't exist. They got into it to help children. They, they were taught by the colleges of education incorrectly. And we know that now getting that thing moved, which there's a lot of people working on that. That's what has to change. And the teachers that have gone over to structured literacy and the science of reading and studied it, they've realized this isn't working. There's always kids I can't reach. There's always kids I can't reach. And then they, they spent their own money and time in many cases and it worked. And they said, that's it. This works. I mean, personally, 
I, we spent tens of thousands of dollars on my child to get him, you know, over to tutors and to a school that did that. That's not fair to your point of equity. That is the way to do it is to get all these teachers to understand that they're not resisting because they don't want to do it. They just don't know. You don't, the old thing of, you don't know what you don't know. And once they know it, they embrace it because it works. Data has proven that over and over. Yeah. I, um, I think too, I mean, that 84, you know, the 84% you mentioned about the improvement, that's almost twice the number of kids reading at a proficient level. It's definitely significant. Um, And I think it's important too, to understand like our instruction, what you're talking about is structured literacy being the, um, we'll say baseline instruction needed is like, that's like the bare minimum we need. That is to reach the 84% or whatever. And then above and beyond that, the other 15%, I mean, that kind of actually shakes out to the the statistics about how many people have dyslexia, right? Like they're somewhere between 15 and 20%. There's your 15 and 20%. They need something different, a different approach, more science, like science of linguistics, you know? So it's, Important. I feel like you're ra- we're raising the bar of expectation for what should be provided to all, so that we can better reach and and more quickly reach those who that baseline is just that. It's like the tip of the iceberg. They need to go deeper down into the sea and get more intensive instruction. Yeah, absolutely. I mean. Yeah, I don't know if that 16% represents, uh, I'm sure it's not just the dyslexia. There's going to be other factors. Clearly, that's going to be a major influence. But, you know, as you probably know, but since 1992, the U.S. Department of Education releases the report card. And as far as I could go find was back in 92, two-thirds of our country have not been proficient in reading. And the same data comes over and over. And if two-thirds are not proficient reading, what does that tell you about reading curriculum it does, or instruction? It does not work. That's what I find so bizarre as a math computer guy is if somebody told me something doesn't work two thirds of the time, what would I do? Throw it out. I wouldn't worry about even fine tuning it. It's like, it's so broken. It's not working. Are there components that could, could work? Yeah, probably. But two thirds, I would throw it out. You would start from scratch and build it up and say, what works? And in essence, that's what the science of reading people did. That's what the national reading panel, to be very specific about the national reading panel for people that didn't take the time to dig down, it evaluated over 100,000 individual studies, not 100,000 participants, those are over 100,000 studies. And it was a period of, I wanna say 32 years, something like that, 30 some years, that's when the studies were done. And they put it all together and said, well, what worked? And that's where you get the five pillars of reading. This is what worked. And what's crazy to me is when they released it, somebody didn't say, oh, we need to change everything we do. They didn't change. That's just so bizarre to me. And But now it has been changing because it works. And that's, the, to answer your question in a very long roundabout way, that's how you do equity. For parents that don't have time to work with their kids, if you teach how we neurologically learn to read, then everybody has access to proper reading instruction. It's sad to me that people are fighting it because they're making millions. There's a program, you might cut this out, I don't know, but there's a program being marketed 
right now called Heroes, and it is and they're using structured literacy, yet it doesn't follow what the IDA identifies as structured literacy. It doesn't work because it doesn't have all the proper components. People can say, yeah, we do phonics, but do you do it extensively and with fidelity? If you do phonics for a day in an entire school year, that's not doing phonics. Technically it is, but it's not really. So I, people need to learn what structured literacy is and what the science of reading is and say, as we evaluate what to use, is it following it extensively, meaning all the components, and is it doing with fidelity? It's so important. Yeah, and I think it's important too, just to see as we go through this change, um, to see is comes up over and over in our conversations on this podcast, but see ourselves as lifelong learners and um, and understanding too that this this uh, baseline knowledge, a structured literacy as the baseline, as the tier one, is not a silver bullet that is going to magically fix fix all of our reading problems, but it is going to help a, a tremendous amount more of kids. Like, you know, you were talking about some of the some of the national um, data, the proficiency data. I mean, actually, when you disaggregate it to minority populations, to kids who come from socioeconomic um, families, like it's actually closer to 40, 45 percent, depending on um, different groups. So that's to me even like even worse. It's not the kids. It's not the, it's not the students. It's the methodologies, right? So I think that this has a tremendous amount of potential to close the inequality gaps that exist in all of our people. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the kids that have access to it are the parents that have the time and effort to go after this, but that shouldn't have to happen. It yeah. should just be there. Yeah, I agree. So one, one thing I'm just thinking, I'd love to pick your brain about, um, when my special education teacher ears perked up when you were talking about like the different levels of training for special ed teachers and myself having gone through um, the academy's training and practicum, I know it was intense. And I know that that is not for everybody. It's not for every single special ed teacher. Um, and so I'm just, I'm, I'm wondering if that is going to be a requirement for our special ed teachers. You mean as a part of the law? Or yeah. A part of guidebook? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That that's certainly. I mean, the, the the guidebook is not done. You know, we're still working on those details, those very specific details. But that was certainly the intention: is to have, uh, you know, practicum, uh, and you know, for the special ed teachers that are going to be working uh, at the different tiers. Now, the classroom teacher, they may not. They don't necessarily have to do extensive training. They certainly have to do training. They have to understand. Uh, so it does depend on what type of special ed uh, teacher you are, how much you're going to be working with the kids in this area. But certainly every district is going to have uh, or is going to need to take practicum and that type of training. It's just how many within the district. Okay, I see. Okay. And so I'm just going to ask a question. Have you thought about as because I feel like now you have to be a steward of this law. We have to make sure that this lives and breathes in every single school district in Ohio, right? Absolutely. That's the next mission. So um, again, with my special education teacher hat on, I think one of the um, 
one of the reasons why I think some people shy away from going through this training is because it is it is very time intensive. It's all consuming. It is um, it's very it's a very demanding program, and d- no matter what um, no matter what affiliation you're with, right? So. I am a behavior analyst at heart, and so I just wonder if there's been any discussion about um, reinforcing the behavior of getting trained in this with a practicum. And and I, what I mean by that is you put on your business hat, and how you know, okay, so like we know that schools and unions work very differently than businesses. But if you had an employee who went through extra training and, you know, years of training and was now qualified to teach kids with dyslexia, would, is there anything in place that kind of, um, I don't want to, I don't want to use the word. I don't know. Is there like a different, different way to compensate teachers for doing that? It costs thousands of dollars to put a teacher through that, but then also I feel like they should be compensated for their higher level of expertise. Well, actually, there, there's two things. One I, I should have mentioned earlier. So one of the things in a guidebook is every district has to create a program of how they're going to train internally, and so eventually you you want to get to that just to make it more accessible. You know, so there are school districts, as you know, in Central Ohio and other places that have their own in-house trainer. And that's just gonna become more and more because it's a part of the law. But but back to your point of how do you get teachers excited about it when it can be uh, a little bit intense? You know, the practical matter is that if you're gonna go really far with it, it's going to be the people that are passionate. They're the first through the gate typically. But then after that, when you see it work, everybody gets excited. Whether you're dealing with technology or education or whatever you're doing, when something is, this isn't working, there's always a few kids I can't reach. And then you get a little taste of it and you see that kid spelling better, reading better. That alone excites you. And because again, these are teachers that got into it to help children. I think they have to experience the success. One of the things I was taught by the former headmaster of Mobburn, who's now passed away, Oral Ramos, he said what he found is if you get the kindergarten teacher uh, in room 101 to work, the kindergarten teacher in room 102 says, hey, what are you doing over there? Because she sees these kids doing better than her kids. And so they all want to help the kids. So once they see the successes and they see other teachers having success, that motivates people. It motivates to be a better person, to want to help kids, and they see the successes. So all those put together is what I think. I mean, it's going to be a combination of those events. Hopefully it's not just that, hey, it's let's say that I have to do that. Uh, certainly that will be another factor, but that's not going to be all of it. I think it's going to be all those other things. And you don't have to go and do the intense stuff right away. You can start, see it work, and then you do more as you, as you find successes. Because if you asked about the business part, I would be a little hesitant. Business part, we do financial incentives. I know that doesn't work in education. Well, I can't say it doesn't work. It's not allowed necessarily in education. It's heavily encouraged in business because it produces results. You know, so it's not really. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I'm saying. I mean, Mike, I want you to seriously consider this question and it's okay if you don't know now and we can certainly like delve down into it. But 
in um have you ever seen a teacher salary schedule uh not seen it i've talked to many teachers okay I so mean, like, what I do, I live with them. okay so high level like you know bachelors with however many years of experience yeah. masters some yep. schools don't acknowledge a PhD. I I think that the next level for this needs to be acknowledging this level of training because I'll say again, like it's it's extremely intense. It takes away time from te- it takes away time from people's families. It, yep. it it requires you to work harder um, designing these lessons. These you're, you're asking teachers to come up with curriculum and implement it and you know what i mean so and i think that we need more people doing that i am a thousand percent in favor of this i want it to succeed so badly that's why i'm just pointing it out like let's think about maybe as your progress monitoring the implementation of this to make sure that it's working to make sure when we look at non-compliance let's look and see how we can um make sure teachers are set up for success and so the kids succeed no that you know that's actually an interesting uh, idea and i i do know of that schedule i mean i have not seen it but i certainly know it. people have talked about it but that's actually a perfect example as if you have different levels of certification um because it is shown your dedication but more importantly than that is you're now going to create results and yeah. we know that based on the data so that does built an incentive. And just so that we don't scare people away, we don't have to have a large, large portion of this deep, deep training. Because if you screen in kindergarten and preschool, and then you teach in the classroom setting, structured literacy, science of reading type stuff, the amount of kids that have to go into uh, special ed or intervention plummets. We know that, we've seen that. And so the kids that need that heavy intervention, even all the way to tier three, is even less. So initially there's going to be a lot more training need because it hasn't been done, but it will go down. This is not gonna go on forever. But but to your point, yeah, I think that's a fantastic idea. If it was business, if it was pure business, we would just have financial incentives. If you have this many kids, cover all the components. So just gonna make up a scenario. These 10 kids in this uh, in two classes, they score at this. If you can raise it to this in phonemic awareness, rapid naming, fluency, so forth and so on, you get this. Guess what happens? Those kids are going to all hit the mark or almost all hit the mark because that's what we do in private sector. There is no way you guys are going to do that. No. It's very difficult. And I don't expect that, but yeah. I'm, just, I'm just throwing you know crazy stuff out there. But to what you said, if you have certification and different levels of certification, in essence, you're going to be producing the same type of thing I described what would happen in business. So I'm not advocating that be done in business or in education, but you could do something similar that mimics that that concept. That's a really good idea. I like that. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> I thought about it for a while because, I mean, I was one, I, you know, after getting my, after doing my, getting my associate with the academy, I was like, oh my God, I could have got a second PhD. And I was so glad I did it. The practicum that I did was invaluable. You know, it really was. But it also was just the beginning. It was just the tip of my iceberg. It was the catalyst that got me continuing to study, wanting more, figuring out all of those cases that, you know, wait, well, I have this kid reading, but they're not spelling it. Why? How can I change? You know, 
um, reaching, you know, all of that was just the catalyst. So I'm also not saying don't do the practicum by any means. I'm just, no, I know that some people don't want to do that. So I'm just hoping, and I think I'm also coming from a place of special ed. There's already a shortage of special ed teachers. There is so much, there's a ton of attrition. So I'm like, Ooh, I hope we don't, I hope we don't scare more people off from the field of special ed. So that's why my mind went to how can we incentivize this maybe in the pay scale for if you do your associates or whatever, if you do a hundred hour practicum, if you do a, if you do your, um, your next level, whatever, see every uh, organization calls it something different. You know what I'm saying now? If you continue yeah. your advanced study, it should be a, another, it should be another column in the, on the teacher pay. No, I agree. That's another funny thing in education, like in math and business, it'd be level one, level two, level yeah. three, then it'll be across the board. But yeah, you guys, they all have different names. So it's kind of funny. Um, so now all yeah, you have I to do is find a bunch of money. Yeah. <laughs> and it's actually not as bad as you think, because again, if you do it at the classroom level in kindergarten, you won't have near as many kids hitting special ed. It's an initial uh, funding issue, but thereafter, it's going to slow way down uh, that we had uh, Marysville did a document uh, to help support a legislation. It's like a seven page document and it shows you the cost benefit analysis over over 25 years. I want to say it's top of my head. I think it was like some crazy like $12 million saved over 25 years and that's one district. So you do save money and the Ohio you're, you're familiar with the Ohio pilot project with dyslexia. I'm sure that passed in 2011. Oh, so in 2011, Ohio passed the, the Dyslexia Pilot Project, and it was a combination of urban, suburban, and rural districts, and they had to teach, you know, uh, at that time it was Orton-Gillingham, they weren't using structured literacy, and then they evaluated the results every year, and they had a third party evaluate the results, a lady out of Cincinnati, um, Julie Morrison, and the results, and they have charts and data, and it screamed, this is working. And they didn't even necessarily do it with, with fidelity, and it still worked. The graph shows you, and that also showed how they saved money. And those were not those districts that analyzed. It was a third non-involved party that showed that. It's available on ODE's website, lots of good information that shows it, it works and you save money. Yeah. So it's not too bad in the long run. No, it's an. I think if we think about it, well, I'm not a, a school administrator, but if we think about it as an investment, an investment in in your teachers, an investment in your students that'll pay back, I don't even think I could put a number to how much it'll pay back in lives, right. like your lives improved. And one of the things you said earlier too, you know, for anybody that's listening, that's on the fence or is much more on the whole language side is if you think of all the people like you and others that have been taught one way, saw kids struggle, they weren't spelling, there's something not right here, there's something not right. And they made the leap of, I'm gonna learn more about this science of reading, Orton, Gillingham, structural literacy, whatever you wanna call it. And then they saw it work. Would you and all the others like you spend your money, your efforts, your time, dedicating a big part of your life for something that didn't work? Of course not. If you went to something that didn't work, you all would have dropped it in a second and not continued on. The only reason you guys are all still here doing it because you saw it work with kids. It absolutely works. You wouldn't be here otherwise. 
Mike, I think that's a perfect note to end on. And I want to thank you again so much for your time and your expertise and all you have given to the kids and parents in Ohio, dyslexic or not, because as we've just learned from you today, this is going to um, have a tremendous impact on every kid. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you being here and thanks for inviting me. Thank you for listening to the Mindful Literacy Podcast. We are so grateful to have you as part of our community. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow, download, and share this episode. You can also like, tag, and follow Mindful Literacy Columbus on Facebook, mindful.literacy.columbus, and on Instagram at mindful.literacy.cbus. We love creating these episodes and hearing from you. Please remember that the suggestions of our guests and hosts are for information and education only and should not be taken as actionable advice. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by Mindful Literacy. Mindful Literacy is not liable for your decision to implement information from this podcast. May you be inspired and energized and share this love with those in your care. Until next time, may you be happy, healthy, and at peace.